It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Good evening. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Tonight, the California Report covers the debate on whether to extend California's moratorium on evictions beyond June and checks in with Emily Cameron, District Affairs and Development Director for Downtown Sacramento Partnership. After a very brief look at local headlines and weather, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about, you guessed it, drought. And we'll hear from Melinda Booth, Executive Director of Circle. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. California is planning to use federal money to cover all the unpaid rent of millions of low-income renters who struggled during the pandemic. Governor Gavin Newsom has voiced his support for that plan as the state legislature debates whether to extend California's moratorium on evictions beyond June. But as Molly Solomon reports, some renters, including those who've applied for relief, are already being told they have to leave. Like a lot of renters affected by the pandemic, Alex Balon has had a hard time paying his landlord every month. His wife had to stop working to take care of their two kids. Then he got into a serious workplace accident. They've been surviving on his disability checks. But it's a fraction of what they made before the pandemic. Balon, who lives in Milpitas, spoke to KQED through a translator with Catholic Charities of Santa Clara County. He's late two months on his rent. Basically, uh, since the accident and not having his wife working, they're really in their tight ropes. Balon owes over $4,000 and said his landlord has already threatened them with an eviction if they don't pay everything they owe by the first of the month. He's applied to the state's rent relief program, which has been slow to distribute $2.6 billion in aid. Catholic Charities of Santa Clara County has helped Balon and nearly 90 others apply for rent relief. Greg Kepferly, the nonprofit CEO, says they're all still waiting to hear from the state. And 25 of them have now received an eviction notice. Kepferly says it would be premature to lift protections now. The money is there. The need is there. Just get it in the hands of the people who need it. Landlords are growing antsy, too, with bills of their own to pay. Lawmakers have just days left to strike a deal on whether to extend the moratorium past June. Governor Newsom says he supports an extension and wants the state to pay landlords 100 percent of the money they're owed. For the California Report, I'm Molly Solomon. With California's reopening, much of the focus has been on businesses that are finally able to open without capacity limits. But in many larger metro areas, the challenge now is to get foot traffic back to pre-pandemic levels. That's especially the case in downtown business districts, which throughout the pandemic have looked like ghost towns with so many office workers working from home. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi caught up with Emily Cameron, development director with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership about what lies ahead in California's capital city. There is no sugarcoating what the last 16 months have been for downtown Sacramento. Really, overnight in March 2020, we went from a bustling downtown central business district with 100,000 employees coming in and out every day, you know, the top destination for visitors at our historic waterfront that borders downtown, as well as nightlife and entertainment. 
and, you know, really overnight, everything shut down. Um, I think we learned pretty quickly how important a mixed use neighborhood is. You know, we have been the center of employment with almost half of the city's workforce in downtown and overnight that disappeared, but we didn't have the residents. So you saw foot traffic dry up, you saw offices empty. Uh, and then obviously with the state guidance requiring businesses to, for the most part, shut down completely, we saw immediate effects. And, you know, fortunately, downtown Sacramento is somewhat unique in that a lot of our ground floor retail businesses are independently and locally owned, which in some ways really meant that people had to roll up their sleeves and, and didn't have the large, you know, coffers or independent other resources to, to be able to lean on. But what they did have was the ability to be creative the ability to be nimble and really lean into the support local movement that really has become synonymous with the brand of Sacramento. When it comes to reopening, we think a lot about smaller businesses, but how important is it for larger businesses and especially their office workers coming back and supporting areas like downtown Sacramento? We've seen retail tenants have pivoted They've changed or modified operations over the last year. But as we resume and try to get back to a sense of normalcy, having office tenants who are driving our economy and driving, you know, sales for these businesses is going to be important. You know, it's they are the folks who are creating not only a, an identity for the downtown, for our city, for our region, but they're also what is fueling that economic engine. So whether it be office tenants who are going out to lunch, happy hour, hosting events, that sort of thing, to, you know, even folks who are attending events at the downtown uh, Golden One Center Arena, or a new theater, or a new convention center. It's, you know, it's a mix of a lot of things, but those are crucial elements to being able to really reopen and resume our economy. That was the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi speaking with Emily Cameron with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care. On the web at chcf.org slash voices. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The largest river restoration project in U.S. history has received a major boost. KQED's Kevin Stark reports federal regulators have approved a dam removal plan along the Lower Klamath River in Northern California. Demolishing four giant hydroelectric dams along the Klamath will open hundreds of miles of waterway along the Oregon-California border to threaten salmon that are critical to local tribes. Dam removal is a two-step dance. The first step, transferring operating licenses from the energy company Pacific Corp to a nonprofit representing California, Oregon, and the Yurok and Karuk tribes. The Fed's latest approval secured this, ending two decades of false starts, broken deals, and fierce legal brokering. Craig Tucker, a natural resources consultant for the Karuk tribe. Well, we're elated. Dam removal can't come soon enough for folks in the Klamath. We're experiencing right now a massive fish kill. The majority of our juvenile salmon will not make it to the ocean this year. And that's a, the dams play a big role in that. 
The second step, actually demolishing the dams and paving the way for a hugely ambitious salmon restoration effort on California's second largest river. That could take time and lots of paperwork. Tucker says if all goes to plan, removal will begin in January 2023. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. In local news, the Nevada City Council meets tomorrow night in a Zoom session at 6.30 p.m. to consider an urgency ordinance to continue to allow outside dining and the closure of Lower Commercial Street, at least through Labor Day. Tents would not be allowed, only tables with umbrellas, and what kinds of music would be allowed is going to be discussed as well. One recommendation was no amplified music, only acoustic. In regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear, with a low around 58. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 85. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear, with a low around 47. Tomorrow, a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 p.m., then sunny, with a high near 76. And for our listeners in the Valley, Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, clear, with a low around 59. Tomorrow will be sunny, with a high near 87. With the drought on everyone's mind, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about the latest in this week's Water News. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, Steve, welcome back. Ah, great to be back. Boy, in the, in the last couple of weeks since uh, we last talked, Water News, there's no shortage of it. And of course, let's start with just the news about the shortage of water. And let's start at the north end of California and move south. How far north are we going to start, Steve? Well, how far north can we actually go, <laughs> Paul? Let's go all the way north to Klamath Falls, okay, bordering California with Oregon, okay? There, of course, is a severe drought everywhere in the west, but oh, up there, it's, it's really looking pretty bad, so, so bad that the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has announced that it would be halting irrigation water that comes out one of the lakes or out of the lake up there. And they're trying to preserve enough water to prevent the extinction of some very important fish up there. The state of Oregon is trying to make things better, try to, you know, remove some of the pain going out to the farmers. And so they have declared, uh, they declared back in March a drought emergency and approved of providing emergency permits that would allow farmers and ranchers to use their wells for, th- for irrigation, for things like that. And this is highly unusual. They don't usually allow that. And in addition to that, they're saying you can take out twice the amount of water that we have done for droughts in past years. So it's a big, big deal up there. Well, things are heating up even more than this because uh, you remember hearing about the militia group led by Edward Bundy? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was a big battle, and he ended up kind of skating through court on that That's whole thing. That's true. He did. Well, uh, the, the groups that he's associated with, these far-right agitators, these militia groups, they're 
they're starting to slowly go down there to southern Oregon along that you know, northern California border. And they're threatening an armed stare down with the federal government over water supplies. That's going on right now. And I'll tell you, the concerns are very real for the farmers and the ranchers and, and of course, the Klamath tribes. Drought creates a lot of hardship for everybody. But you know what? Threat of violence under any circumstance, that's not okay. Well, uh, we've been talking about the water supply, but let's talk about the rivers. Mm, Uh, What are they looking like as of now? Well, let me give you one example. Uh, Let's talk about the Sacramento River. Uh, We are having, as we speak, E. coli issues starting to show up. And that was reported by the Central Valley Water Board. All right. Exposure to E. coli strains is usually harmless, doesn't really cause illness, but it does reflect that degrading quality of water that could become an issue for people later as, as things get worse. So this is something that those of us enjoying the rivers and creeks in the foothills need to be aware of because, you know, where's that water come from in the Sacramento River? It comes from us and, and other areas, the Feather River and so forth. So remember, again, everybody listening, don't drink recreational water or even use it for cooking if you're camping. All right. Avoid algae blooms. In other words, you, you see that water that you're just dying to jump into and it's bright colored. Don't jump into it. Don't do that. Well, let's go down south in California. Uh, how are things looking down there? Well, you know, OK, let's go south as far as Madera County. All right. They're experiencing failing wells. That's what's going on right now. I'm not talking about some a few private domestic wells. I'm talking about community wells as well as the private domestic wells. And there's a fantastic group down there. I've met some of them in the past. It's the Self-Help Enterprises Group. They are distributing temporary water tanks. Right now, about 200 households have them. They've done this before. Back when Porterville had its experienced its problems a few years back, uh, this group, Self-Help Enterprises, uh, really contributed a, a wonderful service in helping those families out. Now, if we go way south beyond Madera County, then we're talking about the recipients of the Colorado River water. Okay, uh, California receives about 20% of its supply from the Colorado River. That's substantial. The watershed of the Colorado River is huge. It's a very, very large area. A lot of other states also receive water, not just California. And uh, But here in California, uh, those that receive it includes the Southern California Metropolitan Water District. You know, they have something like 19 million people they serve or more. And then you have Imperial and Riverside Counties. Uh, the irrigation districts down there and others, they, of course, are always interested in what's happening in Lake Powell. And what is happening is the water levels are substantially very, very, very low. Uh, They have dropped 140 feet in the last 20 years. And the the lake, Lake Mead, is is about 37% full right now. So they're in a very, very bad place. They haven't ever experienced this level of of, uh, decline in the storage of water in Lake Mead. And they are anticipating, because of the low allocations that are being uh, issued, they're anticipating seven states all at the same time litigating against each other. That's how our water rights system works when things get tough. You litigate against each other. And uh, that has never happened. And with the potential for a seven-state litigation, there are a lot of uncertainties attached. So we will have to keep our eyes on this as we move along. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome.
managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. The heat is driving many to our rivers to cool off. Felton Pruitt talks with Melinda Booth, Executive Director of Circle, about the different ways to keep our watersheds healthy and safe. We're talking with Melinda Booth, the Executive Director for Circle, the South Yuba River Citizens League. And I guess one of the main things that's occupying people's mind right now and our river is the drought. So let's start there, Melinda. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that is the big thing on folks' minds. It's pretty terrifying. What happens in a drought is often the the levels in the river drop, and so you can create greater water temperatures. Water temperatures can be hotter, and what those higher temperatures do is they create a more hospitable environment for bacteria, right, like E. coli. And so when you have a drought, you have warmer water, you have lower water levels, you can really, it's like a trifecta of petri dish proportions that can create challenges. And so that's one thing to keep in mind. So you have to be extra careful around the river. And it also really increases the fire danger, right? So we know that our Yuba River Canyon and these areas are extremely fire prone. And so this level of drought means that a single spark, whether it's a campfire, a cigarette, a barbecue, can catch the whole canyon on fire. And I think most folks know this, but it's worth reminding folks that there actually is a ban within the Yuba River Canyon, the entire canyon, um, a ban on fires. So even on private property within that canyon, you cannot have a fire. So just don't do it. It's not worth it, right? Also, sunscreen. People don't usually think about sunscreen polluting our rivers, but it does. Well, you know, it does. It's really interesting, right? You, you think you're taking care of yourself and doing the right thing, protecting your skin from sun damage. And of course, we want folks to, to do that. But um, sunscreen can cause some challenges for freshwater. Um, we have an article I think I'd recommend folks head to the website and read it. There's a bunch of chemical names listed that we don't need to go through now. But, um, you know, it can kill it can kill microorganisms in the water in freshwater. So, a couple things that you can do is is buy a, a more river-friendly, water-friendly sunscreen. Those are out there. But also, if you're going to put it on, make sure to let it let it soak all the way in. There's there's directions on the back of the sunscreen bottle, believe it or not, and it usually says, you know, wait 10 to 15 minutes until you swim. And that's that's because it needs to soak in and really stick to your skin so that it doesn't just come off and create that slick, that like oil slick that you'll sometimes see in the water. Well, it's all good information. We've been talking with Melinda Booth, the executive director of Circle. Uh, Give them the website so people can uh, keep in touch with you folks. YubaRiver.org. You'll find more information than you can possibly handle if you check out YubaRiver.org. We'd love for you to visit and um, reach out with any questions or, or thoughts that you have. All right. That's Melinda Booth from Circle. Thank you for all the info, Melinda. Thanks, Felton. Finally, we close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Does anyone remember the promise of progress? That man will improve manufacturing methods, streamline methodologies, develop faster computers, 
grow bigger apples and do it faster, and we would all have more leisure time to sit at the beach and contemplate the meaning of life. Well, most of that happened, except for the last part. We did get faster computers, better growing and manufacturing techniques, and improving just about everything we did. Heck, we can even talk to each other if we want from the top of Everest, or research the entire contents of the now-defunct Encyclopedia Britannica while sipping a latte at the local coffee house. Despite all this, however, we seem to have to work harder than before, work longer than before, and still can't seem to make ends meet. I seldom see any discussions about the thwarted promise of progress. Perhaps we've all forgotten, but I haven't, and I ask the question, what went wrong? Seemingly, whenever mankind figures out a way to make things cheaper, faster, or better, somebody eventually wants to tax it, alter it, or break up the company that does it. Either that or those that fail to compete complain enough to somebody and then the subsidies come out that sustain the old methodologies and therefore the higher costs and subsequent waste to our natural resources. Examples are everywhere. Amazon excelled at making things cheaper through widespread pricing awareness and now those threatened by it cry foul. Apple made phones wanted by many and now finds itself in the front of the powers to be to answer for its so-called crimes. Walmart, Costco, Sam's Club, and a host of other big box stores and mega chains suffer the slings and arrows of those who can't compete and then find mandated and usually arbitrary costs attached to their products under the guise of fairness. The list goes on and on. Next will be, I would imagine, that automated robots, as they replace more and more people, will no doubt have a robot tax attached to them and probably an ongoing one at that. It seems like being too successful is not allowed. Get too big or sell too cheaply and prepare to be roasted. Find a way to make things faster than the next guy and you can expect somebody in the ivy halls of the state or at the federal level to find a way to make your goods or services expensive again through some sort of tax or retribution payment. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against taxes, but I am a fan of sitting by the beach and when I was growing up, I believed in this promise of progress. Not so anymore. Anytime something gets cheaper or better, the better part stays around, but the cheaper part doesn't last long. Rising prices now seems the norm, no matter what we do, brought on by either inflation, taxes, fees, or those surcharges. Companies that grow huge due to the popularity of its prices or products eventually hit the wall of outcry. The cat calls of the unfair with a label of monopoly. Regulation is then sure to follow with higher costs, eroding the savings to the general population, and therefore that promise of progress. Seems like competition is becoming a dirty word, that innovation eventually leads to handcuffs, and that novelty leads to complaint. Have we forgotten that improvement in its many forms is a good thing? True, some may be displaced at the very same improvement that obsoletes methodologies and dries up revenue streams, and that may result in some businesses failing, but this is the natural progression of innovation. Capitalism calls it creative destruction. Most people see the destructive part and fail to see the creative part. The creative part is what brings about the promise of progress, the lower cost or better mousetrap, and forces those run over by the promise of progress by innovation to become more efficient and find a better way to do whatever it is they do. And there lies the real benefit to mankind. Better or faster equates to more efficient. More efficient means using less resources, whether it be power, materials, or even saving time. All those add up to using less of our planet's resources less resource consumption, 
translates to efficiency, and that means more product being available to more people, like food. It also means less pollution, less greenhouse gases, and a more sustainable world. That the powers that be don't look past the outcries from those temporarily displaced by the promise of progress is to the detriment of us all and the planet we inhabit. That does it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed here are my opinions only and not those of any bank or investment advisory firm and may not necessarily represent those of this station, its staff, management, or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That does it for our newscast tonight, June 22nd, 2021. We get support from Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive in Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse frames, coverings, and components, down-to-earth amendments, and IPM products. Open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. K-A-R-M-E-N-S garden.com. Stick around. Coming up next, it's Embracing the Journey, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. Thanks for supporting Community Radio. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening.